In the late 1800s, after a handful of botched hangings in Europe, the public demanded a new method of execution. Enter the electric chair, a machine that did the dirty work. Flip a switch, and a person died. Clean, quick, humane. Electric chairs sent 1,000 or more volts through a person's body for up to three minutes, literally cooking the condemned. Between 1888 and 1965, New York State had the death penalty. In that time, five men from in and around the Syracuse area were executed in an electric chair for their crimes. This is the story of one of them. Antonio Viandante, an Italian immigrant and cobbler from Manlius, New York. He had gone on a murderous rampage in late 1922, and on the evening of April 10, 1924, he found himself strapped into the electric chair at Sing Sing Prison with a state electrician's finger on the switch. I'm Sonny Hernandez. And I'm Josh McDonald. This is The Condemned, the stories of five men with different paths who arrived at the same destination, the electric chair. Here is our first story. In his 21-year career as chief warden of Sing Sing, Lewis Laws had overseen 303 executions. He hated it. He called them barbaric. Witnessing executions made him physically sick. Yet, even as the warden hoped for an end to the death penalty, he had a job to do. And so did Boyden Sparks, a reporter for the William Randolph Hearst's International and Cosmopolitan. Laws and Sparks stood together in the warden's parlor at Sing Sing, waiting for the prisoner to arrive. It was Laws' job to see the execution carried out, it was Sparks' job to write about it, which he did in extraordinary detail in an article titled, You and I Killed This Man. That condemned man was Antonio Viandante, the immigrant found guilty of double murder. Viandante was convicted of using a butcher knife to kill his wife and then the poor, unfortunate owner of that knife, the neighborhood butcher, who was simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. Much of the detail provided here is from Sparks' article. Other information comes from newspaper accounts from Viandante's trial. Antonio Viandante was born in Italy, but no one was sure exactly when. At the time of his trial, he was telling everybody he was 40, but that was a guess. He didn't know when he was born. He never attended school. He couldn't read or write. As a child, he became a cobbler's apprentice, learning how to make and repair shoes. A few years later, Viandante began to suffer from what today sounds like epileptic seizures. He felt dizzy and had frequent headaches. Sometimes he passed out, waking to find himself on the ground and frothing at the mouth. An Italian doctor said he suffered from mal de luna, described as an illness of the moon, a lunatic. The doctor who diagnosed Viandante told him there was no cure. He'd have to live with the blackouts. When he was in his 20s, Viandante joined the Carabinieri, Italy's military police. But he lost that job one day after he woke up in a hospital, guarded by two soldiers with fixed bayonets. A doctor told him he had started a fight with a major, a captain, and two non-commissioned officers. They gave him 650 lira and told him he was off the force. He returned to cobbling. He married, but abruptly abandoned his wife and sailed for the United States to find work settling in Utica, New York, working at a cotton mill and earning $3 a week. And that is where he met Jack Dando. Dando was a foreman at Salve Process, 
His job was to travel around the region and find men to work at the plant. Shortly after meeting him, Viandante moved to the Syracuse area. I saw Viandante and liked him, Dando recalled. Dando's presence in Viandante's life would soon prove to be bad news. It is difficult to say if Viandante ever worked at Salve Process, but he did find a wife after he moved, Rosa Corva. Like Viandante, she was an Italian immigrant, and she too had left a spouse in their native country. She remarried in America, but the marriage ended when her husband died in the influenza epidemic in 1918. She had two sons, Anthony and Peter. She got married for the third time to Viandante shortly after her husband's death. They moved into one of the apartments above Frank Vasto's butcher shop in Manlius, New York. Viandante returned to being a shoe repairman and opened a shop in Jamesville, just south of Syracuse. He was known about the area as Tony the Cobbler and was thought to have a good reputation. He had several brushes with the law, including petty larceny convictions, carrying a revolver, and being accused of using dynamite to kill fish. Viandante's marriage to Rosa wasn't a happy union. From the beginning, he believed his wife was cheating on him and spending his money on her lovers. He was especially leery of Dando, someone the newspapers called a genial, dapper, manliest businessman. Dando spent many evenings at the Viandante's place and later moved into the same building. That drove Viandante to distraction. He hid in closets, hoping to catch the two of them in the act. Rosa would often bring Dando his laundry, and when he was injured in a quarry explosion, she would visit him in the hospital, sometimes twice a day. They argued over Dando day and night, especially after Dando had asked for an outside stairway be built up to his room. Viandante often drank so much he passed out. But even then, he blamed Rosa, saying she got him drunk so she could sneak off to see Dando. It is impossible to know today if Rosa and Dando were ever having an affair. The hospital visits, the stairway, and the fact that Dando bought several of Rosa's dresses at an estate sale to raise money for her orphan sons suggests Viandante's suspicions might have been true. After four years of a tumultuous marriage, Rosa had had enough. She contacted a lawyer, George Cole, in December 1922 and made a claim that her husband was cruel. She wanted out. On the evening of December 3rd, 1922, Viandante, with a quart of whiskey in hand, came home drunk. Rosa was on the phone, speaking with her lawyer. Viandante, a large man, at six foot four and 240 pounds, flew into a rage. He hurled a water pitcher at her head. As Rosa's children looked on, he grabbed a bread knife and drove it into Rosa's chest. So hard the handle snapped. Rosa escaped. She ran out of the apartment, down the stairs and into the street, shrieking for help. Her sons on her heels. Her husband followed. Then, Rosa made a profound mistake. She ran into the downstairs butcher shop and into the back room where the owner, Frank Vasto, was in bed nursing a broken leg. Viandante was right behind her. He grabbed a 13-inch butcher knife from a block, freshly sharpened, and followed his wife into the back room where Vasto lay. Amy Fontana, another boarder, was in the room helping Vasto when Rosa burst in. Rosa was covered in blood. She begged Fontana to call a doctor. Viandante burst in and threw Fontana into a partition. She laid there motionless and watched as Viandante grabbed his wife with his left hand, 
bent her backward, then drove the large knife into her chest and neck over and over again. One blow was so severe the knife came through her back. He dropped his dead wife to the floor. Viandante turned to Vasto, who screamed at him to get out of his shop. Viandante ignored his threats and drove the knife into the butcher's heart. He would die three hours later. Viandante dropped the knife, walked past Fontana and his two stepsons, and climbed the stairs to his apartment. He put on his overcoat and hat and went out into the street, where a crowd had gathered. No one in the crowd made any attempt to stop him. He walked to a nearby church, prayed, then boarded a trolley car for Utica. The police finally arrived at the scene, and a warrant was made for Viandante's arrest. An eagle-eyed streetcar conductor noticed Viandante on his car and alerted New York State troopers in Utica. They were on the station platform, waiting for him when he arrived. Antonio Viandante was arrested and brought back to Manlius. He immediately confessed. He was still in a rage, muttering in Italian and broken English. At first, he told police that he had killed his wife while she was in the arms of her lover, Frank Basto. He claimed he was justified under an unwritten law. In Italy, I would be a free man, but here in this country, I am held by the law because I did what would be called right in the old country. Several times I have caught Vasto having wrong relations with my wife, and I could have killed them each time, but I held off because of the American law. Here in this country, a man can do what he wants to with women and get away with it, but in Italy, it is not so. In Italy, men do not touch other men's wives, for there the women do not often go out of the house at night. But when it does happen, the husband may kill the man or his wife, and the law does not interfere. He then changed his story. Killing Vasto was a mistake. He had no reason to hurt the butcher. He was just in such a blind rage by the actions of his wife. His fury was meant for Jack Dando and Rosa's attorney. Those were the men he wanted to kill. As he was being driven to jail, the car passed the crime scene and standing there was Dando. As the car passed, Fiandante bit his finger at him, giving him the Sicilian death sign. He muttered in his broken English that had he not been handcuffed, he would kill Dando there. Then, you shoot me, I no care, he said in the police car. After his arraignment, Viandante sobbed. He asked that his dead wife be brought to him. He threatened a hunger strike. The killings of Rosa Viandante and Frank Vasto were the first double murders in Onondaga County in over a dozen years. The first-degree murder charge carried with it the automatic punishment of the death penalty, reintroduced to New York State in 1888. Viandante pleaded not guilty to both charges and said he had no money for an attorney. When the judge asked if he wished to have a lawyer appointed to him, he shrugged his shoulders. He could not have been appointed anyone better than Richard Shanahan. Shanahan had a bit of a streak going. He had argued 17 first-degree murder cases in his career and had every one of them knocked down to something less severe. It is possible that the appointment of Shanahan brightened Viandante's mood. In the days leading up to his trial, Viandante was a new man. He was unperturbed and happy, and greeted visitors with a cheerful smile. When not joking or participating lightheartedly in the conversations of cellmates, he passes the hours singing the songs of Italy 
his motherland and native tongue, the Syracuse Herald said, who photographed him in his cell with something of a smile on his face. We couldn't ask for a better prisoner, said jailer Joseph Hanley. His trial began on January 15, 1923, just six weeks after the murders. Jury selection took three days. The Andante sat quietly and passively throughout the testimony, only once showing any emotion. On January 20, 1923, the prosecution's star witness, Amy Fontana, testified to what she saw and then demonstrated how Viandante used the knife to slay his wife. While the members of the gallery gasped, the Herald reported that Viandante quailed visibly while she mimicked the stabbing motion. The knuckles of his tightly clasped hands went white. The defense strategy was to portray that Viandante had gone insane with rage and then blacked out while killing his wife. He took the stand in his own defense on January 24th. After describing his childhood, including his illness of the moon, he gave an account of the day of the murders. He went to Syracuse early in the day to meet his lawyer. When he returned home, he was hungry and not drunk. He asked Rosa for something to eat, and her reply was, I'm not going to get anything for you. You can leave this house. Viandante said that he tried to calm his wife, telling her that money being used for a divorce would be better spent on themselves and her two boys. Rosa then prepared a plate of meat and macaroni for herself, and when Viandante asked for what was left, she responded, No, I'd rather give it to Dando's dog than you. She put the plate of meat on the floor, and that, he said, was the last thing he remembered until his arrest aboard the trolley in Utica. Reporters said he grew pale and clenched his fists as he testified. Viandante's trial lasted 15 days. When it ended on January 30th, the jury found him guilty in just four hours. On February 2nd, he was scheduled to die in the electric chair. When the sentence was pronounced, Viandante exploded. If it wasn't for Dando, I'd never do the thing. And if I told it all, it would fill a big book. Jack Dando is to blame. He bribed the jury, the judge, and the district attorney. I must die for what he did. The Herald said he slumped on his feet as if he sensed the hopelessness of making others understand. In the months that followed, Antonio Viandante's lawyer, Richard Shanahan, tried to win his client a new trial. They were denied. When New York State chose electrocution to be its means of execution, it built death chambers at the prisons at Denimora, Auburn, and Sing Sing. Sing Sing's electric chair, given the name Old Sparky, was first put into action on July 7, 1891, and over the next 70-some years would be used to electrocute 614 convicts. A special prison within a prison, called the Death House, was built to house the chair. The corridor leading to the death chamber was the last mile. Guards called the condemned prisoners Thunderbolt Jockeys. At its peak in the early 20th century, there would be as many as seven executions a day in the chair. Viandante's executioner, John Hurlbert, took the job at Sing Sing to earn extra money to pay for his wife's medical bills. He was paid $150 a night. On days when there was more than one execution, he was paid an extra 50 a head. Once, he made 400 in a day. He quit after executing 140 prisoners. I got tired of killing people, he said in 1926. In 1929, he shot himself in his basement. Pass in silence into the death room. 
Warden Laws announced as Boyden Sparks and the rest of the small group settled into the church-like pews in the execution chamber. A cardboard sign with the word, Silence, was tacked to the wall. Inside the room was a white enamel table and the electric chair itself. It stood throne-like about six feet from the rear wall. A black and sinister spiral of heavily insulated wire projecting over a high back. Half a dozen guards, dressed in blue uniforms, were arranged around the room. At 11.09 p.m., one of the men moved toward the door, put his hand on the knob and his ear against the crack, listening for some sound on the other side. Suddenly, he stiffened, then opened the door, letting five men inside, Antonio Viandante at the center. He walked with a queer shuffle, Sparks wrote, that was born of his effort to keep from stepping out of the loose slippers on his feet. About three steps into the room, Viandante noticed the strange guests who were sitting in the pews. The look on his face was when Sparks said he would never forget. He had half turned from us, but the back glance that came to us over his thick shoulder out of angry eyes was not one I shall forget. For him, we represented society. We were his jury, his tormentors. We were the owners of that electric chair, and he hated us. Fiandante sat in the chair as calmly as he would have at his local barber. John Hurlbert, the executioner from Auburn Prison, moved into a small alcove and waited for the signal. Fiandante said nothing as the guards took care of things quickly about him. A black band was drawn across his eyes. One pulled his head back against the chair, while another was fastened to his chin. Only his dry lips could be seen. A salty sponge was placed on his shaved head, and one of the uniformed men fit a helmet on top and connected an insulated wire to it. An electrode was strapped to his leg, where another salty sponge was placed to ensure a good connection. When all was ready, the workers moved away from the condemned, as men running from an impending explosion, Sparks wrote. Dr. Amos Squire took his position next to Viandante, glanced at the alcove, then his watch, then raised a yellow pencil above his head. Sparks wrote, Dr. Squire swung his pencil baton down to his side. There was a metallic crash, not loud from the alcove. The man in the chair simultaneously seemed to try to escape his bonds. His torso was straining against the straps. A force stronger than his love of life was hurling itself in a maelstrom through his veins, his nerves, his brain. The Andante's lips protruded from the straps, turned purple, and produced small bubbles. I saw a wisp of greenish smoke rising from the calf of the bare leg. Above the knee, where it was gripped by an electrode, the white flesh was swelling as yeasto rises in the heat of a hearth, Sparks wrote. After an agonizing three minutes, Dr. Squire motioned to the alcove to stop the electricity. The Andante fell back into the chair. Squire pulled out his stethoscope, listened to Viandante's chest, and appeared satisfied. He handed it in succession to three more doctors, who all listened for any life in the condemned man. Then Squire raised his arm and dropped it again, and a second blast of electricity was sent through the corpse. The straps were removed, and then Squire announced, I pronounce Anthony Viandante dead. Sparks and the other guests were ushered back to the warden's parlor, where a long table was set with glittering silver, 
glass, and spotless linen. The centerpiece was a display of Chinese vermilion carnations. Two waiters, both inmates from Sing Sing, served cold meats, bread, and coffee. While processing what he had just witnessed, Sparks was interrupted by a sheriff's deputy, who told what he knew about Viandante through mouthfuls of ham and bread. Yes, sir, if he'd taken my advice, he would not have been here tonight. I was talking to him half an hour before he did it. I said to him, if you're going to live with her, don't be fighting with her. Just half an hour later, he'd done it. He drove a butcher knife into her neck and right on down to her stomach, cut through her backbone. He was a good guy most of the time too, and a good shoemaker. No one claimed Antonio Viandante's body. Next time on The Condemned, the story of a Syracuse, New York cop murdered in the city streets. Police arrest the man they think is the killer, but when headlines hit the newspapers, his real identity is revealed. The truth may have indicted him in the final act that sent him to the electric chair. The Condemned is hosted by Sonny Hernandez and Josh McDonald. Stories written by Jonathan Croyle and Steve Carlick with editing assistance from Sonia Duntley. Recorded and produced by Katrina Tullick. Thank you for listening to The Condemned. Want more? Check out Syracuse.com condemned to see historical images, videos, and additional stories connected to the electric chair. If you like what you're hearing, please share this podcast with others and rate and review our series as it helps new listeners find us. We really appreciate it. This is a Syracuse.com production.